Keep that uh, passage open, very short passage tonight, but a lot in it, and uh, let's pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we know that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to judge uh, the very thoughts and inclinations of our hearts and souls, and we pray that it might do that tonight. And we pray that you might soften our hearts to be receptive to your word, uh, so that we might be ready to be encouraged where necessary, to repent where necessary. But in all things, give us the faith to respond correctly to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These days it's fashionable to have a motto or a uh, sort of a statement that you captures your attitude to life. Uh, and for some reason, footballers are particularly prone to this. Uh, for some reason, it's now fashionable to tattoo that motto somewhere across your shoulders or up your arm or up your leg or across your chest. Uh, my problem is I don't think I look good enough without a shirt to have a tattoo like that. But uh, for some reason, people feel this need to tattoo it on their body. Uh, my son Sam uh, was hanging for the start of the rugby league season. So he got on the Canberra Raiders website to find out when the league season begins. Thanks, Adam. And uh, then I go in and find that he's looking at the tattoo gallery where all the players are there flexing and showing off their tattoos for everyone to see. And they all have these mottos that are there, sort of like their what I live by motto. Uh, and they're things like, I wrote a couple down, he who dares wins, he who hesitates is lost. Obviously the Raiders hesitate a bit too much. Uh, <laughs> my family, my life was one that sort of meant a little bit more than you know some of these other things that don't mean much at all. Uh, I must admit, I always look closely just to check if they've made a spelling error. There's that sort of mischievous sort of part of me that, or the, the apostrophe's in the wrong spot or something like that. Uh, Michael Slater, the Australian cricketer, he got his number, his test cricket number tattooed on his leg and then he found out he'd got the wrong number tattooed on. So he had to apply to the Australian cricket board to have it changed so that his number was right. And I, I just thought if I was with the Australian people, I'd say, no, 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 bad luck, Michael. Get a new one. But no, they were nicer than me. Uh, but if the, look at your passage here, if the Apostle Paul were alive today, and if he was a rugby league player, as unlikely as that is, uh, we saw last week what he would have tattooed across his chest. Uh, this is what it would be, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or as we've got it here, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Uh, and unlike all those other truisms people sort of come up with today, what he says actually means something incredibly profound. Uh, in fact, it is one of the most powerful statements ever made, especially if you remember where he was as he said it. He's sitting in prison because he was willing to stand up and be counted for Jesus. And so he says, for me, I'm happy to die. In fact, it would be better for me to die because then I would get to go to be with my Lord Jesus forever. For me, dying is better. Dying is gain. But if I live, the only reason I live is to honour Christ. That is the only reason I want to stay here. Living is Christ. So he said, I will give up security. I'll give up comfort. I'll give up the hope of a family. I will give up my freedom because the one reason I am here, the one reason I live is to bring glory to Jesus by telling other people about him. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And I want to say, if that doesn't grip you, uh, we would say in our heart, the Bible would say in our guts, if that doesn't grip you and make your pulse race a little bit, uh, then I have to say I fear for your salvation. 
Because as someone who knows Christ, we get this. We get this passion. We get this sort of unstinting, totally focused love for Christ. But at the same time, if it doesn't make you squirm just a little, uh, if it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, then I doubt for your sanity. Uh, you see, uncomfortable at its lack of balance, uncomfortable at its all-or-nothing attitude. We, we don't like zealots. Uh, Australians are suspicious of zealots. Uh, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable also at how far short our reality falls of living up to that, of how far short our life falls of that sentiment, uh, it, it should make us squirm because we ask, could I truly say that? Could I truly say that for me to die is gain and I live only for Christ? And so there's a sort of a temptation to think, I think, isn't Paul amazing? I love the fact that he is so gung-ho for Christ and that's great for him because he's a super Christian, uh, but not for me. Uh, now the non-Christian, or if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, or, or the hard-hearted person, of course they just dismiss it as nonsense. They just say he's exaggerating. He, he, he's just expanding the truth about how he lives to make a point. But the Christian, the person who truly knows and loves Jesus, uh, I think we say, yeah, that is what I believe. I believe that living is for Christ and dying is gain. I do believe that, but please God help me to really believe it. I think that's how the true Christian thinks about it. I do believe that I want to live like that. I, I long for that to be my reality, whilst almost in the same breath, in my sin, I know that I live for other things more than Christ. And while I know my future is secure because of Jesus, I trust in his death and resurrection alone for my salvation. While I know that, I still fear death. And I would actually still rather be here than to go to be with my Lord. Isn't that true? Isn't that the tension of every Christian? Or am I alone in this? Well, in that light, uh, the Apostle in our passage, just our four verses we're looking at tonight, you'll be pleased to know, uh, he now turns to talk to the Christian. And I think, if you like, he now puts it in another way. He, He now says it in a different way as he turns to what is his hope, what is his dream for every believer, that is, for every one of us. And this is what it is. Look at verse 27. His hope is just one thing. Have you ever noticed how there's two types of just one thing? Uh, please pick up some milk on your way home tonight. Just one thing, pick up some milk when you're going out to the shops. There's that sort of thing. Or there's that other, just one thing I ask of you. Look after my children when I die. Or, or throw that ring into the fiery pits of Mordor or something like that. You, you know, Just one thing. This is one of those massive just one things. It's the latter sort. Uh, so look at what he says. He says, just one thing, just do this for me. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's our line to tattoo across our chest if you're into tattoos. Uh, I'm not encouraging you. To, anyway, yeah, don't go home and say, Phil told me to get a tattoo across my chest. Anyway, you'd need a really big chest to have that line. But anyway, if we are a Christian, we know the gospel. So it's the gospel that drives us if, if we're a Christian. We know that wonderful truth that Jesus came into the world to die for our sins. He saved us from hell. And we know that wonderful truth that he did not stay dead, but he rose from the dead and so offers us the hope of eternal life. Uh, And we know now that he lives 
and reigns at his Father's right hand and he is the Lord of everything and he is the only hope for all of humanity and the only hope for anyone is to trust in him and his death and resurrection. That's the gospel we've come to believe. That's the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, now all I ask, given that you believe that, now all I ask is that you live your life, however many days God decides to give you, you live your life in a manner worthy of that gospel. That's the just one thing. Uh, that is the heading for the rest of what he's going to say. And it's the heading that he wants us to live by. As you make decisions, we ask, is that worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that worthy? Another way of putting it is, is that worthy of the one who died for me and rose again to give me eternal security? Uh, as we think about how we treat others, we ask, is that worthy? of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we think about what others see when they look at our priorities, when they look at our lives and they look at the things we do, is that worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does that bring glory and honour to the one who died for me? Does that point people to my Lord and paint him in a positive light? Just one thing. But I think it is one of the most challenging and all-encompassing things. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so with that in mind, what he does now is he turns to the Philippians uh, and their specific situation. He says, if you do that, if you get on with living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether I ever get to see you again or not, because remember, he's in prison. He could be about to die at any moment. Whether I get to see you or not, I will hear something about you. It may be I hear it in heaven or maybe I hear it here on earth. Whatever it is, I'll hear some things about you. Uh, if you like, this is what living a life worthy of the gospel looks like. And there's three things. I'll put them on your outline. The first is you will be standing firm. Look at verse 27 there towards the end. He says, I will hear about you that you are standing firm. The first and most fundamental key of living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is standing firm and being counted for Jesus. That's the first thing. And remember, they were facing persecution. To stand up and say, I'm a Christian, back in ancient Philippi, uh, that puts you in physical danger. It wasn't just the danger of being excluded by your friends. It puts you in physical danger of being put in jail, potentially down the track being thrown to the lions. Certainly it resulted in financial prejudice. If you were the town blacksmith and you said, hey, I'm now a Christian, People took their business elsewhere and your children starved. You see, that's what a person who knows Jesus does. They say, so be it. I will stand firm and I'll keep trusting in Jesus no matter what. By God's incredible blessing, we don't face anywhere near the persecution that these early Christians faced. And we should thank God for it. And we don't face anywhere near what so many in the Christians in the world today still face. Uh, being a Christian in some parts of the Middle East today is horribly difficult. Uh, to convert from Islam in some countries means you sign your own death warrant. It, it attracts a death sentence under law. You see, we don't know that fear, but we're still tempted not to stand firm. Well, at least I am. Uh, when people make fun of Jesus... I'm tempted to just remain quiet rather than say, actually, that's my Lord you're making fun of. 
When people say that only a fool would believe the Bible, often we don't deny Jesus, but all too often we stay silent. We have to say, is that standing firm? Is that worthy of the gospel of Christ? And the time is coming in this country very, very soon when preachers will get taken to court for preaching sermons in their church that are faithful to the scriptures. Uh, There are anti-discrimination laws currently being debated in our parliament that will open up the possibility where, and I'm not talking about wacko lunatic preachers here, I'm talking about good old normal, well at least I think I am, normal preachers like me, even Anglican ministers, uh, who simply preach the Bible and say Jesus is the only way to God, uh, or say other religions are wrong, or say that homosexual practice is a sin, just like adultery, and needs to be repented of, Uh, or say abortion is wrong. A time is coming when preachers who say that will be taken to anti-discrimination courts, and it will happen within the next 10 years. Uh, Those are the issues where we will be tempted in just the next few years not to stand firm. We will be tempted to, to water down the Bible rather than stand firm. Thing is though, you cannot stand firm on your own. The apostle says, uh, I want you to stand firm, but I want you to do it unified, together. And that's my next point. Look again at verse 27. He says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. It's very hard to stand firm when everyone else runs away. You know, when you just sort of look around, suddenly all those people who are standing next to you aren't there anymore. The temptation then is to say, well, everyone else has given up, so am I. Army generals knew that. You had to march in one unbroken line because if one person turns and runs, it's all over. Uh, I found the uh, the old movie Zulu. Do people remember the movie Zulu? I found it $2.95 in the Kmart DVD bin the other day. I thought I'd watch it. It's got Michael Caine in it, if anyone knows that. Terribly un-PC now and probably couldn't be made today. Uh, but anyway, it was about this little group of English soldiers. All the winners are always English in those old movies. Uh, and how they withstood wave after wave of the Zulu warriors. And they survived because they stood together. Uh, that was the whole point of the movie. If one man had turned and run, that was the end. But they survived because they stood together. And it's the same for living a life worthy of the gospel. We stand firm together. We're bonded together by our common faith. That is, our common commitment to Christ is what joins us together. Our common belief in the gospel. And that works two ways, I think. Uh, Firstly, having other people stand with us in our faith gives us the strength to stand firm ourselves. So, So if you're in a workplace where it's not, where people don't appreciate the fact that you're a Christian, the fact that there is another Christian supporting you, even just in your church on Sunday, gives you the strength to stand firm. But also part of standing firm in the gospel is actually putting your arm around the, the other brothers and sisters next to you and saying, I will support you. I'll encourage you. I'll spur you on. I'll share God's word with you. It's that partnership in the gospel we saw a couple of weeks ago in the early chapters. That's why when you hear people say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a part of a church. Uh, I'm a Christian, but, but I'm just sort of loosely affiliated with a church. It's so, so sad. I mean, it's ungodly, first of all, uh, but also it's just silly, it's stupid. God has given us our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are the gift God gives us to help us stand firm in the gospel. 
That's why we must be a part of a Christian community. But also, and this is my third point there on the outline, that standing firm together is not just a unity of what we think in our mind. It's not just a unity of belief. It's also a unity of mission and purpose and action. It's not just an inward unity. It's an outward-focused unity. Look again at verse 27. I promise you we will get to the other verses, but verse 27 again. He says, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. What's that talking about there? It's talking about a unity where together we don't just stand firm in the gospel. Uh, We don't just uh, metaphorically sort of bunker down uh, to see off the storm. It's a unity where we get out of the trenches and fight side by side. Like soldiers in the war, we sort of get over the top and we proclaim Christ. We work together to tell people about Jesus. See, the the danger of focusing on standing firm, the danger of talking all the time about how the world doesn't want to know Jesus and the world's against you, is it creates a bunker mentality. It's sort of like, let's withdraw from the world. Let's hold on to what we've got and keep it pure as we dwindle away to nothing. That's the danger. And Paul would say, yes, I want you to hold on to the gospel, but no, part of standing firm is getting on with our mission together. Uh, That's why I want our small groups, I want us to start thinking of our small groups as teams here at Church in the Bank. Teams who together encourage one another to stand firm, but also get out and do stuff together. Get out on mission together. Work out how can we reach our friends for Christ. See, a group of Christians that only looks in, that only cares about its members, a group of Christians who are not committed to getting out and winning others for Christ, has actually given up the right to be called a church. It's no longer a church because it's abdicated its God-given role. Our God-given role is to work side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. One way to think about this, both as a Christian and as a church or as a small group or about anything, is whoever stands firm will never stand still. Standing firm never means going backwards or standing still. It's the person, the Christian who stands firm is always on the front foot. They're always growing in their knowledge and love of Christ, always growing in their faith and always out there telling other people about Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul asks of the Philippian Christians. That's what he wants from them and he wants it of us. Just one thing, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm, holding on to Jesus no matter what, doing it together in unity but with a unity of mission. Uh, It's a massive ask though, isn't it? If you're really honestly thinking about this, uh, it is a massive ask. And just put yourself back into the original readers, back in Philippi, back into their shoes. See, he knew what they were facing. They were facing horrible persecution just for being Christian. And this is what he asked them. And so what he does next is he reminds them in these last three verses, he reminds them of something so, so important. He reminds them of a Christian understanding of suffering. Uh, And please listen very carefully to what he says as we look at it, because I think it is one of the most important things to know if we are going to stand firm in the gospel. See, one of the great lies that often gets peddled in the name of Jesus, and if you turn on your television on a Sunday morning any time between 3am, not that anyone I sane person would do that, but anyway, between 3am and about 10am you'll hear this lie, is that if we trust in Jesus we will avoid suffering. Uh, 
sometimes it's crass. You know, it's just along the lines of, if you have enough faith, God will make you healthy and wealthy and all that sort of thing. More often it's more subtle. Just this, God will look after you. He will ensure nothing too bad happens to you if you trust in Jesus. Why is that such a horrible lie? Well, firstly, because Jesus doesn't promise it. That's one reason it's bad. In fact, he says, if suffering is good enough for me, your master, then it's good enough for you. When I say me, your master, by the way, I mean Jesus, not me. Uh, But Jesus says, if suffering is good enough for me, it's good enough for my followers. That's the first thing. But secondly, it's horrible because what it actually does is it stops people standing firm. It destabilizes people's faith. If Christians hear or believe that God promises them that they will be spared from suffering, then what happens when bad things do happen to them? What happens when they do get sick? When loved ones do pass away? When they do get persecuted? Well, they say, what's happened? Why hasn't God kept his word to me? Is God not faithful? Is God real? He hasn't done what he promised he would do. Uh, Is my faith inadequate? Am I really a Christian if this has happened to me? And you see, Paul doesn't want these Christians to throw away the faith when the persecution starts, when they face suffering. He wants them to stand firm. And so he wants them to know that the suffering they face, in particular when they are persecuted for following Jesus, he wants them to know that that is actually part of God's plan for them. Uh, Look at verse 27 again, but then into verse 28. He says, Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance. And this is from God. What's he saying there? Look closely at that, verse 28. He's saying, when Christians are persecuted for their faith, but they don't fall back, when they don't give in, when they don't water down the message, when they stand up with the Apostle Paul and say, what do I care? Jesus is my Lord. Do whatever you want to me. Take my money. Call me names. Exclude me from the social group. Uh, Or literally, for these Philippians, put me in jail. Throw me to the lions. When Christians face those threats and stand firm together in the gospel, not afraid, not buckling, that sends an incredibly powerful message. It's the most powerful sermon anyone could ever preach. See, to the opponents, it tells them you will be destroyed because the gospel is true. That's why these people are willing to die for it, because it's true. And so if you do not repent and believe before Christ returns, he will come and judge you. And to the Christians, it's a sign of their deliverance, their salvation. See, I think he means Christians standing firm in the face of persecution is one of the greatest proofs of the truth of the gospel. That's what it is. And do you know, experience bears this out. One of the great proofs for the resurrection of Jesus is that all of the apostles were willing to be put to death rather than recant the truth that Jesus had risen from the dead. Eleven of the twelve were martyred where they could have said, look, it's actually not true. Just go up to Galilee, you'll find the body hidden up there. They could have turned their backs on it. But the fact that every one of them would rather die than deny Jesus is incredible historical evidence for the truth of the gospel. There's an old saying from church history, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, When Christians assimilate with the culture, 
when Christians and churches, when it's fine to be Christian, and when the church fails to stand out from its culture and just says, we'll go along with whatever the culture says is good, ironically, it withers and shrinks. When it's easy to be a Christian, the church sinks and dies. Ironically, the biggest threat to our faith is not people throwing us in jail, it's not persecution, it's affluence and worldly security and how easy and good we have it. Because you see, when your treasures are on earth, it's very, very difficult to keep following the one who offers treasures in heaven. When you have heaven already and you think you've got it pretty good, it's very, very hard to live for something beyond. But when there are times of persecution, when people suffer for their faith, when despite it all they stand firm, that is when true Christianity, that's when the gospel blossoms and blooms. And it's captivating to people. Because people say, what could make a person be willing to suffer like that rather than give up their faith? People say, what could be so amazing? What could be so true that these people would rather die than give it up? Please tell me about the Jesus who's worth dying for. See, people find the Jesus worth dying for far more captivating than the Jesus who makes you a bit better than you were before and makes your life just a little bit more fulfilling. Luther, last week, joked the best thing that could happen for our church is for me to be arrested. I've tried it this week and no one had arrested. Anyway, uh, I would suggest it would be better for an assistant minister to be arrested because then we could get the benefit of it, but the church would still operate. Anyway, anyway, uh, but I agree with his sentiment. His sentiment is right. In fact, the apostle actually goes as far to say that persecution, suffering for the name of Jesus is actually a gift from God that you should rejoice in if you have the opportunity to do it. Uh, See there in verse 28, he says, this is from God. Then even clearer in verse 29, he says, it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. See what he's saying there? God has given us the privilege of suffering for his name. Uh, Do you remember when we looked at Acts last year, when the apostles were first physically attacked for preaching Jesus, what did they do? They didn't run off and hide. They went home rejoicing and saying, how good is that? We have been counted worthy of suffering for the name of our Lord. We just lost Yodge. Why? What's why? You. The least important of the three, Luther. There you go. (laughs) Powerful sermon illustration that Sarah intended. If someone doesn't know Jesus, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, then I think you should say I'm talking gibberish, really. To say that it's a a joy to suffer, that it's a privilege to suffer, that God gives it to us for our benefit. If you don't know Jesus, then I'm talking nonsense. How can it be a privilege to suffer, really? Uh, But the person who knows Jesus, the person who has been amazed by the gospel, I hope they say Amen. Uh, But I think... We also slowly ask ourselves and with trembling and trepidation and wishing we didn't have to ask ourselves the question. I think the faithful Christian says, why has it not been given to me to suffer more for the name of my Lord Jesus Christ? And what would the Paul, what would the apostle Paul answer if we asked that question? I think he might say, well, you modern, comfortable Western Christians living in Sydney, Why don't you just get on with that just one thing? 
Just really get on with living a life worthy of the gospel. Because I can tell you, if we get out there and stand firm and work side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, then God will answer our question. If we get on with living a life worthy of the gospel, he will give us the privilege of suffering for the name of Jesus. But if we stay silent, you know those family functions? Your family, your family might all be Christians. Mine isn't. You know those family functions where someone makes a joke and makes a comment about Jesus and you rationalise why you stay silent because you don't want to upset granny? That's not standing firm. Standing firm is standing firm for Jesus because he's more important than granny. You see, if we let people go on thinking that our Christian faith is a personal thing and it's nice that you go to church but it doesn't have any impact on them, that's not standing firm for Jesus. If we don't stand up in our culture when people deny Jesus, speak against him or try to lead us away from God's way, then we are not living lives worthy of the gospel and we will never, ever have the privilege of suffering for his name. I remember when I was at high school, I wasn't a Christian, and there was a Christian group, uh, a crusader group at our school, uh, and I used to join in with the other guys making fun of the kids who went to that Christian group on a lunchtime. Uh, one of the guys there, even though we would rib him mercilessly, and I really do mean mercilessly, uh, even though we do that, he still stood up and came into the classroom and invited every one of us to his youth group and invited us to his church. Uh, and you know what? After a while, after about the tenth time he did it, I went with him because that was compelling. See, that is compelling. To stand up against year 11 boys at a boys' school takes real courage. And he didn't care what we said. He thought, I'll tell them about Jesus. Now, he wasn't in any danger of getting his head cut off for his faith. Uh, he wasn't in danger of being thrown to the lions, at least not literally. Uh, but even so, for a year 11 boy, that is real courage, I think. To not just stand up to your your peers, but then step forward and challenge them and invite them to follow Jesus. And I think that sort of courage is compelling, isn't it? See, it wins a hearing for the gospel that we would never win if we just retreat. That is living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'm going to pray that each of us here might do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might do this just one thing, that because we know the Lord Jesus, who died and rose again for us and now reigns eternally, because we know him, we pray that we might live a life worthy of the gospel. Help us to stand firm together. Help us to be committed to one another, spurring one another on in love and good deeds. But we pray that we might also be united in our mission that together we might go out to our world and declare Jesus to anyone who would listen. And we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.